Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. You want to be careful and looking at where the market's at on the expense side, because that can really hurt you, especially in Dallas, where you have insurance and property taxes that can go wild every single year. You want to be very cognizant of what you underwrite, because that could almost lead you to a foreclosure if you don't understand how property taxes work in, say, Houston or Phoenix or San Antonio. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest, Bikran Sandhu. Bikran is joining us from Phoenix, Arizona. He is the CFO and co-founder of Rise 48 Equity. They provide multifamily investment opportunities for both accredited and non-accredited investors and they invest their own capital in each of their deals as well. Bikram's portfolio consists of $1.4 billion of multifamily properties. Bikram, thank you so much for joining us, and how are you today? Hey, Ash. Thanks for having me, man. Really appreciate it. No, I'm doing well. How are you? Good. It's our pleasure to have you. If you wouldn't mind, share with the best ever listeners what you've been working on lately. Of course. As you mentioned, Ash, we're a multifamily investment firm, and we primarily buy 80s value-add deals in the Phoenix market. We just recently expanded to Dallas as well. So we started buying properties out there at the start of this year, and we have a couple of closings scheduled over the next couple of months. But business on our end, we're continuing to buy, continuing to renovate our units, and continuing to push NOI to realize the returns for our investors. Bikran, you are the COO, the CFO, and a co-founder of Rise48. Take us through the evolution of how you got involved in this. Of course. So my background, Ash, is I used to be an auditor with PwC, did that for about three years and went into management consulting with a local consulting firm and really cut my teeth with all the financing, the discounted cash flow analyses, models, performers, et cetera. So really learned about how companies got valued, how companies sold subsidiaries or acquired other companies, and more importantly, really worked on helping companies integrate other companies. So along the way, I had a couple of real estate clients that I worked on and went into their finances a little bit and realized, hey, there's a lot of money to be made here. And there's not an incredibly complex business model to, to get under your skin. So what I did was 
really started learning about multifamily around 27, 2018. And in 2018, I took the leap with some passive investments and then learned how that process worked. And then in 2019, we started buying our own deals. That's when I met Zach and Robert, our co-founders, and really hit the road with Rise48 Equity. So you went from zero to 1.4 billion since 2019. Correct. Yeah. What's the secret to scaling? No sleep. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, you want to make sure you partner with the right people. You're really kind of like a dating game when you first start partnering with different individuals to see whose skill sets complement your skill sets. But I think the biggest advantage that you can have is finding someone who can complement the skill sets that you have. For example, my background is finance, investor reporting, and operations management. I can bring those skills to the table and be able to execute efficiently. I am horrible when it comes to talking to brokers and talking to investors. That's where Zach and Robert really step up. Zach's greatest skill set on his end is he understands that broker relationships are critical, lender relationships are critical, and the investor relationships are critical. So he really works those aspects of his skills. And then on Robert's end, he's making sure that when we're renovating units and we're renovating our exteriors, that we're hitting the business plan that we need to, and we're actually doing the items and the services that we're supposed to be doing according to our business plan. So we each have our own niche. We don't step on each other's toes. And that's how you can really kind of scale really fast is find someone who fills in the areas where you're lacking the expertise, focus on your competitive advantage and just hit the road. Did you know Zach and Robert before you started Rise48? No, we actually met in early 2019. They were looking for multifamily deals at the same time that I was. And we actually ended up meeting at a real estate conference that we attended. I actually met Zach virtually first and then flew out to Phoenix, meet him in person. At the time, they had a deal and a contract and they were looking for some capital. And it was a tenant in common structure. So I came in with my own capital, really kind of put all my life savings in there. And then I was on the ground making sure that the finances and the investor reporting was being done appropriately amongst the take owners. And that's where we started scaling up from. So you were like, that was fun. Let's do it again. Yeah, pretty much. Just do it again 41 more times. <laughs> so you're a very analytic individual. Did you set out to become the COO of a large company? It wasn't to make some money. It was you want to grow this into something big. Exactly. So at the beginning, this was more of like a side hobby for me and Zach and Robert, where we were just going in and buying deals on the side to kind of build up our passive income. That was really the main goal. And along the ways, we kind of started thinking about scaling bigger and bigger and in the company itself. Obviously, it's very hard to do that when you have a W2 job where you're focused 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. And then you come home from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. You're working on real estate. So in the first couple of years that we started working together, 2019 and 2020, we didn't really scale that much. We were just doing this again as a hobby. And then 2020 came along and then COVID hit and then we could barely buy anything just because the entire markets were shut down. And then in 2021, we really took a leap of faith. We said, okay, well, we don't have dependence on us where if this doesn't work out, someone can get hurt. It's more of if you want to take a risk, now is a perfect time to take that risk. So I quit my day job. Zach quit his day job. And we essentially went into Rise 48 together in 2021. We bought 16 deals that year. We bought 16 in the second year in 2022. And then in 2023, we've sold 11 to date so far. So our oldest deal we own is from June 2021. So it's a risk that we knew we were taking, but we never imagined we'd grow so quickly. 
But now as we're growing and building out the infrastructure, we have the right pieces in place to make sure that we're not in the nitty gritty of every little detail of the company. A great example, six months ago, I used to do corporate finances. Then we hired a corporate controller. I look at it once a month to make sure that we're still on track. Same thing with our FP&A or financial planning and analytics division. I used to run all that. Six to nine months ago, we hired a P&A manager who has taken the reins on that. And along with his analysts, they do all the lender reporting and the investor reporting. And I check in once, maybe twice a month and everything runs by itself. So it's making sure we're hiring the right people in the right places. On the topic of risk, were you doing bridge loans? Were you locked in with interest rates or did you have a lot of variable rate loans? We primarily do variable rate loans, Ash, on our end. And the way we take the risk off the table for the variability is we buy interest rate caps on every single deal. Before 2023, we essentially used to buy interest rate caps around the rate where the SOFR was at, or maybe one or 200 basis points above where SOFR was. Obviously, in 2021, SOFR was close to 0.05%, and we were buying interest rate caps around 2%. So when interest rates started shooting up, our debt service started shooting up, but it was capped at 2% on our end. So we buy interest rate caps for three years for all our deals. That means our earliest interest rate cap that's going to be expiring is going to be in June of 2024. And we have no reason to worry about on any of the deals. We're cash flow positive on most deals. And we're making sure that if we are not cash flow positive on certain deals, then we have operational reserves, which we've always raised from every single deal. Some of our investors didn't like the fact that we were diluting equity by raising more money than we needed to. But it's really kind of been really critical over the past 12 to 18 months to make sure that if you are negatively cash flowing, you have those reserves to put towards the negative cash flow. So we've never done any capital calls in the past. We don't have any plans to do any this year. We don't have any plans to do any next year. Um, so we're well capitalized. We have interest rate caps to protect us. And we're just burning through our renovations to make sure that once those bridge debts do come up for terms, we have enough NOI to refinance if the markets aren't back. But if the markets are back, you can sell the deal as a fully stabilized asset to a 1031 owner or some sort of institutional equity. And the benefit is you don't have to sell if they're cash flow positive, right? Exactly. If it's yep. not adequate, if cap rates continue to decompress, you mm-hmm. have the option of holding these assets. Exactly. As long as we do our business plan, we're not having any issues hitting our pro forma rents across the board. You'll have some areas in the submarket where rents are going down a little bit. So you have to compensate for that with concessions which we'll do. We know it's a short-term thing, but overall, the market's still very strong in Phoenix. And going into Dallas, we've renovated 13 units at the deal that we just bought in February, and we've had absolutely no issues hitting the rents that we need to. We're actually about $25 above our performer rents out there. So it's been great. We underwrite conservatively on our end to make sure that we're not starting off on the wrong foot. Now that the market's half pulled back, we can still see the fruits of our labor where we're hitting our performer rents. The only issue is we're having to offer higher concessions than we wanted to. What are those concessions? Typically, it's like an amortized concession where we'll give someone, say, $1,000 off of their rent, but that's over the period of the next 12 months. So in the first three to four months, they might get $200 off on concession side. So if their rent is $1,200, we give them a $200 concession. So their effective rent is $1,000. But then in months six through 12, it goes down to $100 or $50 in concession. So it builds up to that $1,200 mark. And then next year when they renew, they're already at that $1,200. So we'll bump it up maybe $50 or $100 according to our normal business plan. And they wouldn't really need to move or go anywhere because their rent's already been at that place for a while. 
a much better solution than giving discounted rent. Exactly. Right? Yep. Your, your books you give discounted better. rent. You open the floodgates pretty much. So you want to be careful with that. The rate caps that you're going to potentially have to buy in 24 and beyond, they're going mm-hmm. to be a lot more expensive than what you've purchased prior. Is it still SOFR plus three on those rate caps or do those prices vary? Yeah, they vary. So the beginning of this year, instead of buying SOFR caps at wherever SOFR is at, we're starting to buy them below the SOFR number. So if SOFR is at 4.5 or 4.8% as of today, we're buying a rate cap around 1.6%. So not SOFR plus three, but SOFR minus three almost. So the benefit of that, Ash, is that we're not having to worry about interest rate variability. So if tomorrow or next month when the Fed increases the rates or keeps them where they're at, we don't get impacted by the volatility. We have our interest rate effectively fixed at the number that we need to, and we're essentially going through a fixed rate debt on a bridge loan, which really helps us out so we don't have to worry about raising additional reserves for our loans. And those caps are expensive. Some of them cost up to around 10% of the loan amount. So if we're taking a $40 million loan, you have to buy a cap for $4 million, which is a hefty amount. And the way we do that is we'll underwrite the deal, assuming that we're going to pay this much money for the SOFR cap, so that when we do offer a price to the seller, it's taking that closing cost into account. So really what it's doing is we're keeping our investor returns where they need to be. And we have our closing costs pretty much dialed in. Now we're adding this $4 million number in there. Well, that's only going to come from one place, which is the price. So instead of offering, say, $60 million on a deal, now we're offering $56 million, And that's the max we can go, given the debt environment. So there's different ways to skin the cat on this. Obviously, you can try to do fixed rate debt. We can do Friday Mac or Fannie Mae debt. That's a little bit cheaper, but at the end of the day, we're doing heavy value add on these deals. And this is the product that works because you don't want to end up raising $10 million in cash flow. That's going to be sitting in the property bank account from investors because that's not going to be utilized right away. And then you also don't want to end up in a fixed rate situation where after two years, you've doubled the NOI and now your equity is locked up. You can get a supplemental, but it's not going to really unlock all that equity. There's a lot of large operators that are just pausing. They're not doing anything. You guys are still full steam ahead and expanding to Dallas. That's correct. We believe in our business plan and we believe buying at the right basis is critical. So you've heard a lot of people say they're waiting for more and more foreclosures to happen or they're waiting for more and more deals to hit the market where the sellers are distressed, which makes sense. I would do the same thing if I were them. But the issue is these are not single family homes. This is not a mom and pop owner that bought 10 homes and now they're having to get rid of everything because they can't rent them out. These are large scale apartment institutional owners where we're buying, at least in Dallas, at least 200 plus units. You're not going to have a local mom and pop owner that bought this back in 2021 with their own money and they just want to give it back to the bank and walk away. You'll have some of those with local syndicators that for the very first time they've done a deal and they didn't take into account all the risk factors of the deal. But by and large, I believe a lot of the deals that we're going to buy, they're really currently owned by either institutional equity or JV equity where they'll pump money and they're not going to let $10 million go off if they don't want to put an extra million in. They're going to pump additional money and keep the deal afloat and sell it at a good price or a good basis to at least recover some of their capital. 
but the ones that are really going to hurt are the ones, the deals that we're probably not going to pursue in 60s, 70s that are just getting hammered by insurance, hammered by property taxes, and then they don't have a cap to protect them against variable rate loans. So those are the ones we'd probably stay away from. But 80s and newer, 90s and newer, at least the deals we're underwriting, they're owned by institutional equity or large JV groups that are not going to sell for a discount, essentially. And Bikram, with having to buy those future rate caps on the horizon, are you mm-hmm. pausing prefs to save money to pay for those? We haven't had to do any escrows for any of the loans because all our loans are three years plus two one-year extensions. The terms of those loans are essentially, if we do want to do an extension, we have to buy the cap for that extension. But none of the deals that we have currently, we're going to have to essentially extend the bridge loan. We're gearing everything up in a way where once the 30th or 31st month hits, we're going to go through the refinance process. And we're doing the analytics today to make sure that we are renovating enough to get to that level. But once that 31st month hits, we're going to stabilize the property, go through the Freddie Mac refinance and refi out into short-term fixed rate, you know, like a five-year Fannie Mae product or a floating rate loan with Freddie Mac, assuming we're also building in cushion that we're going to have to buy a rate cap for this. So we're going to assume that we're going to get proceeds from the loan to buy that cap. So as long as our NOI is there from a numbers perspective to support a floating rate loan, plus a rate cap, plus giving back a little bit of equity to the investors where we're gold on our end and all the deals that we have are projected to essentially hit that as long as we continue renovating. But if we have to buy a fixed rate loan for a short term, say a five-year loan, we might do that as well if the market softens a little bit more or gets a little more and more into recessionary territory. So Phoenix was on fire, as was Austin and some of these other Sunbelt states. And you guys arguably bought at the peak. And now Mm -hmm. prices are not what they were a year ago. Does that scare you? And how do you underwrite knowing that you might not be able to sell for what you purchased the property for? Every single time we bought assets, Ash, we've never assumed that rental growth was going to be close to 10, 20%, which it was for the past couple of years. And Phoenix gets a bad rep for being boom and bust market. People tend to think that Phoenix is going to be booming for a couple of years and it's going to be a bust for 10 years and boom for a couple of years, which is really not the case. If you look at the past 10 years worth of data in Phoenix, or even 15 years, as far as back CoStar goes or, or RealPage goes, Phoenix's average rental growth has been around six, six and a half percent over those 10 years. So we've never assumed even that in terms of our underwriting. We've always assumed around three to 4% rental growth on all the deals. We've lost probably close to two to 300 deals in 2021 and 2022, because the price we got to was 20, 30, 40% below what the deal sold at, because we just did not believe that the rental growth was going to sustain. And we know people who bought at the peak as well, who are suffering with those deals, because there is no way they're going to catch up on their NOI because of their aggressive rates that they assumed. So on our end, there might be a couple deals here and there that we bought at the peak where we're not going to be able to sell them in 12 months and get a 2x equity multiple. But we believe in our business plan, we've always assumed a five-year hold and always assumed we're going to refinance after doing around 70% of the renovations that we're doing. Instead of doing 70%, we're going to go through 100% because we think interest rates are a little bit higher when we're going to be refinancing. So if we have to hold it for five years, that was our original plan anyways. So that's what we're going to do. But if we can sell it earlier, we'll sell it earlier. But it doesn't make sense to sell a deal we bought last year, this year, because those prices probably are not going to support a 1.2, 1.3 equity multiple at this time. 
We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Deciding how to invest your capital is more challenging than ever. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company with a solid track record and that has thrived through various economic cycles. Companies like BAM Capital. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator that has delivered a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital's never missed a preferred payment, never lost an LP's investment, and never called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital is currently raising capital for a fund designed for accredited investors targeting a 15 to 20% IRR and a 2 to 2.5x equity multiple to its investors over a three to five year hold period. If you're an accredited investor and you want to learn more about multifamily investment opportunities with BAM Capital, visit capital.thebamcompanies.com. Again, that's capital.thebamcompanies.com. Are you a real estate investor looking to break into the multifamily investing space? Have you heard of MFIN Con happening in Charlotte, North Carolina, June 12th through the 14th? The Multifamily Investor Nation Convention is a place to learn from over 60 high-level apartment investors while networking with more than 700 additional investors. If that's not enough for you, A-Rod, yep, Alex Rodriguez, 12-time Major League Baseball All-Star with over $700 million of commercial real estate assets, will be live and in person speaking at the event. Also speaking is the one and only Dr. Robert Cialdini, the godfather of influence and the award-winning author. I personally love his books. So be sure to secure your tickets to this live in-person event before they're gone. Go to MFINCon.com for more details. Sponsorship opportunities are also available. Visit MFINCON.com today. Use the promo code BESTEVER to get $200 off your tickets. That's MFINCON.com. Out of all the other markets you could have gone into, what were the metrics that made you pick Dallas or was it just proximity? When we first started in 2018, we identified three markets we wanted to get into. It was Phoenix, Dallas, and Tampa. We started with Phoenix just because I used to live in California at the time and it was the closest one. We could drive to it every other week and that's what we did. We met with people and looked at properties. The reason we started going to Dallas, we still believe that Phoenix is a strong market. I don't know if you saw the news, but Maricopa County, where Phoenix is located, was ranked as the number one location for all demographic movements from July 2021 to July 2022. That's two years in a row. I believe third year. I think we're in the top five in the past five years. We still think Phoenix is a great market to be in. There's a lot of job growth happening here. And I think over the next five, 10 years, it's really positioning itself to be a really strong economic market. And we see Dallas as a great market to be in as well. The only issues with Dallas that we have, as you might be aware, is property taxes and insurance. As long as we can mitigate risks related to those items, we think we're in a strong position in Dallas as well. And as long as we buy in a good neighborhood where there's not 40,000 units getting built up right around the corner, we're going to be pretty safe out there as well. So we think Dallas is a great market right next to Phoenix, and we think it's good to buy deals there right now. Have you abandoned Phoenix, or are you waiting for the prices to come down, or are you still actively looking in Phoenix? We're actively looking in Phoenix. I think our basic goal right now is to expand in Dallas as much as possible over the next 12 to 24 months. So if we have deals that are ready to go in Dallas that we can underwrite and and get under contract, 
then we would buy those deals over Phoenix currently. And the real reason is we want to expand the footprint out there. We've already built out the infrastructure. Now we just need to get the deals underneath there. So we think we want to get around one to two dozen deals there before we shift focus and go 50-50 between Dallas and Phoenix. But if there's a good Phoenix deal out there, you're not going to just say no and then look for a Dallas deal. When you say we've built out the infrastructure, what does that mean? The team, the vendors? Instead of hiring a third-party property management, so RISE 48 is vertically integrated in Phoenix. What we essentially wanted to do was take the footprint here and the blueprint that we've established, establish it in Dallas as well. So what we did was we hired a regional vice president for the market. We hired a regional property director a regional maintenance director and a construction manager to make sure that when we buy deals out there, that they're not being managed by a third party, or it's not dependent on us being there physically to run the business plan. So we have the infrastructure there from internal operations perspective, and the people that we've hired have decades of experience in that specific industry, either in property management or in construction management. So when we go through our business plan with them, they understand what their roles and responsibilities are and they understand that they report up to us so that every couple of weeks when Zach and I are going to Dallas, they know that we're checking in almost twice a month basis to make sure that the deals are performing where they need to be at. And instead of us being there locally to run the deals, we have the people there to make sure that our business plan is being executed and our operations are on point with the property management. Did you preemptively hire these people before your deal? Yeah, we did. Man, yeah, we Do you have some PTSD from getting sucked into property management on your first couple of deals? Yeah, we do. Yeah. <laughs> so we had about a dozen deals under management with a third party here before we moved into property management ourselves, and that was kind of like a rapid fire movement. We went from having 20 employees over to almost 100 employees in a week essentially. And then right now we have over 220 employees total, but we wanted to make sure that Dallas was situated appropriately and we're not putting out fires. We're not being reactive. We're being proactive. So if we needed to incur the extra salary today to make sure two months from now when we have a deal is taken care of, that was an expense we were willing to take. We have an office out there as well. We took that office lease before we even bought our first property. So we wanted to make sure that the company was established before we went out and bought deals out there. All right. So this is a combination of PTSD plus your corporate background at PwC all coming together, putting your systems in place. Let's dive into that because you guys have had an incredible parabolic rise. What's your advice to syndicators that maybe just got their first deal done 50, 60, 70 units, maybe a hundred unit deal. How can they mimic what you guys have done and walk in your footsteps and have an equal level of success? I think the very first deal that we bought was a 36 unit deal. So the best advice I can give in that regard is be very detailed and very micromanagey almost on that deal specifically. We had a third party property management company that was doing the basic operations but Zach was going out to site to make sure that the renovations that they were planning on doing were happening. So he was working with the subcontractors, the GC, to make sure that we knew the business plan going in, the timeline going in, and the budget going in. I was very heavily involved on the accounting and finance side. So almost on a daily basis, I was jumping into Buildium, which was the system that they used, and checking out what's our delinquency level, what's our rent roll looking like, what's our T12 looking like, making sure I understood all the numbers and I was asking questions. So if I didn't understand something, I went to the PM and asked, 
what's going on here? What does this number represent? Are we doing accrual or cash basis? Why are we changing or what are we not doing correctly? So I was asking a lot of questions. If you don't have experience in this industry, it's not incredibly complex to learn, but you'd still need to learn it. You want to ask the stupid questions that you think are stupid, but some people might go back and and give you a a bit more lengthy answer, but you want to ask the question. So in that first deal that we did, it was the smallest deal that we ever did, but that's where I spent most of my time. If you look at on a per deal basis, that was the deal where I spent almost eight to 10 hours a week managing just because I wanted to learn everything. Every deal since then, I maybe spend eight to 10 hours a month now on managing because we have the people in place, but you want to learn very, very detailed level basis, how the deals perform, and then slowly scale from there. And it's an exponential growth. So once you've kind of hit an inflection point, you can really take it to the next level. Let's say there's a couple of buddies that got together and took down a 40 unit building. What's mm-hmm. their first hire that you would recommend to scale? I would not recommend hiring anyone right away. I would say for the first three to six months, do everything yourself. Learn exactly what needs to be done at a property management level. Understand how these deals are run from an asset management perspective before ever hiring anybody else to do something. Because the first hire that you want to make, you want to give that person enough experience, enough training so they can take things off your plate. Not so much. There's three things that need to happen. I'll do number one. The first hire does number two and your other partner does number three because you never know what that number two thing is going to get done appropriately. So learn to do all the things that you need to. Six months in, once you've mastered those aspects and you know what needs to be done from that role, at that point, hire that first person. After we started buying more and more deals, the first person we hired was our asset manager. I was doing all the asset management at the time, but when it got to around a dozen deals, that's when it became a little too much for me to underwrite the deals, do asset management, do investor reporting. So from an asset management perspective, we give that off to Kaylee Chris, who's now our VP of operations. So she runs all of the property level operations and business plan execution. So that was our very first hire. And that first hire is going to be very critical. So you want to make sure you put the time and effort in to identify the right person in that role. And you have over 200 employees today. Can you give us buckets of how many people are in different departments? Yeah, of course. So we have almost two dozen employees in our finance and accounting department. They're headed by Elise, who's our corporate controller, and Matthew Scova, who's our FP&A manager. And then we also have, I would say, about half a dozen regionals on our team. And then almost 130 employees that are on property management. And then the rest of the employees are in HR, IT, or back office support to make sure that we run smoothly on our end. We have, I would say, almost half a dozen in acquisitions and investor relations as well. They primarily make sure that once you have a deal under contract, that it goes from point A all the way to point of close. And our IR team makes sure we have almost three to 500 investors in every single deal, making sure all those investors sign their documents, get the funding in and tracking everything to make sure we're not missing any funds or missing any investors. And this is still absolutely mind-blowing that you've done this since 2019. (laughs) Yeah. It's hard to wrap your head around that. Truly incredible. You're hiring several people per month, right? Yeah. It's all about building the right infrastructure in place. You don't want to end up having two dozen deals under management and then trying to figure out how to do everything on the back end after you've bought the deals, because that's how you get into trouble, essentially, is when you don't have the system in place. Yeah. So look, let me argue with you now. You've got this tremendous back end support system. Why are you only in Phoenix and Dallas? 
why aren't you in Charlotte and Oklahoma City and Kansas City? And Indiana. Yeah, no, we want to expand. (laughs) We want to make sure every market we go into, our plan is not to go buy a deal out there and then see how it does and then go deploy our footprint out there. We're very careful in our steps that we take outside of Phoenix and the Dallas market. It was a six month progress to make sure that do we really want to get out there? How do we do it right? How do we make sure that we have trust in us to make sure we don't just get their money and use them as guinea pigs? We wanted to do everything right. So every single time we go into different markets, the first thing we do is we want to establish our infrastructure, find the right people in this place make sure that we have that back office support ready to go. And that's when we'll go buy deals. So that's how we approach these different items. And multifamily wise, everything is very similar. You're buying deals in Phoenix or Dallas or Indianapolis, you're not going to find a terribly different way to lease those units or do marketing. It's pretty similar cookie cutter across the different markets. The issue is the people. This is a people-oriented company, and if you don't have the right people, those deals are going to fail very fast if you don't have the infrastructure there. So we want to be very cognizant of the fact that if we are going to different markets, that we have eyes and ears there before we buy a deal, because you can get in trouble again very fast if you buy a deal somewhere you don't know you're supposed to buy a deal. I'm going to keep pushing. So you expanded from Phoenix to Dallas. Next time, can you take two cities at the same time? I don't think we'd do that right away, at least. Our goal is to buy two dozen deals in Dallas, and then we'll expand out somewhere else. But we want to be, again, careful with that, right? So if we want to expand to two cities at the same time, we want to make sure we have two different regional VPs out there helping us build our base of operations. And that's when we'll buy deals out there as well. (laughs) I feel like you're leaving a lot of money on the table. Would you consider acquiring one of your competitors? I've never really thought of that, really. I think the business that we're in, We're syndicators. So we have a lot of investors in every single deal. We don't really do JV opportunities, at least not yet, but we're looking into that. But there's an option to acquire a massive portfolio and we have the equity behind it to make sure that we can acquire that portfolio, then we might pursue it. North Carolina is a great market to be in Raleigh. North Carolina is great. We've looked into that. And if we can say we have 3,000 units out there, someone wants to sell right away, it's distressed. We can come in. We have a JV partner that can put up the money and and we can put up our co-invest. We might go out there, hire the VP, go on essentially a hiring spree, make sure we hire the right people in place, get the deals under contract and expand out there. But I wouldn't go out and buy a competitor just for the sake of buying a competitor, so to speak. Yeah, Bikran, earlier on, you mentioned performas, and you've got this incredible finance background. What's the biggest mistake people make in doing their performas and underwriting? You really want to look at your expenses. I think everyone really focuses on the revenue side, and they want to dial that in. And then on the expense side, they leave it to the property manager and say, you guys go take care of this and you're just going to plug it into your model. I think the biggest risk you can take on your end is not reviewing the pro forma expenses, the budget for every year. We've had situations like the very first deal that we syndicated, our property manager gave us a very aggressive budget now that I look back on it. And there were obviously red flags I could catch right away. And after we took over the deal, our expenses went from 3000 a door to 3500 a door overnight based on their new budget they put together, based on how they wanted to run the property. So you want to be careful on looking at, for example, your controllable expenses. You have maintenance and turnover. If the property is incurring six, 700 a door right now in maintenance expenses, don't underwrite 200 a door. And if the property is doing $13 or $14 a door in maintenance expenses, 
do not underwrite $14. Some sellers are really good at asking how their T12s look. So you want to be careful and looking at where the market's at on the expense side, because that can really hurt you, especially in Dallas, where you have insurance and property taxes that can go wild every single year. You want to be very cognizant of what you underwrite, because that could almost lead you to a foreclosure if you don't understand how property taxes work in, say, Houston or Phoenix or San Antonio. Here's a question that you've probably not been asked. And the only reason I'm asking it is because I want to challenge you. What is one thing that you wished you had done differently, whether you or your company, so that you could have scaled faster than you already did? (laughs) Scaled faster. I think the biggest thing I probably could have done better is we probably would have underwritten some of these deals a little bit more conservatively when we were buying them in 2021, 2022. And by that, I don't mean changing the rental growth rates or anything. I think the biggest lesson I've learned this year is when you're buying caps on deals, don't buy them 200 basis points outside of where SOFR is at. Buy it at SOFR or below SOFR. That way you take away the interest rate risk. And the reason I say that is because when deals start cash flowing, say $50,000 a month, like $10,000 a month, investors will notice. And a lot of the investors that we work with, they understand the market, they understand what's going on, but you'll have some investors that aren't really focused on it. So you'll see when cash flows start going down, they start asking questions on what's happening and why didn't you think about this earlier? That's something I wish I would have done differently, where I bought caps around 1% versus 2%. And that way, it could have scaled much faster on where we are today because we wouldn't have investors worried about those items. So we've never had any trouble raising equity, but we've seen it slow down. I think across the country, you've seen equity deployments slow down. So if we didn't have any issues in the past and we could have continued to scale and we didn't have any deals that were, for example, negatively cash flowing, you wouldn't have any investors asking what's going on tomorrow, what's going on day after on these deals and not being too skittish about investing in the future. That is a great answer. Thank you for that. And I knew that question would challenge you. Thanks for sharing that. Bikram, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? I think the best advice I can give is don't be afraid to take a risk. You don't have to go out there and buy or get under contract a 300 unit class A building to start off. If you have to start off at a single family, start off at single family, but take the risk. You don't want to be 50, 60 years down the road thinking, what if? Take that risk to jump in and you you never know what's going to happen. So worst case scenario, you lose $10,000, $20,000, you have to start over again. Best case scenario, you end up in a situation where I'm at with a huge company that you're running and making sure that it's running smoothly. Awesome. Bikram, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Yeah, let's do it. What's the best ever book you recently read? I'm currently reading a book called Good to Great by Jim Collins. It talks about how companies go from just being good, going up to being great. And it's really been really helpful in in understanding management style. I'd recommend it. I was going to say that's a book for corporate people, but you guys are there. You're a big corporation now. (laughs) Well, trying to. (laughs) Yeah. What's the best ever way you like to give back? We donate to multiple charities in Phoenix. We support the Phoenix Children's Hospital. We just donated just over 25000 out there over the past couple months to help them build their new neonatal program in Gilbert. And when anyone reaches out to us, we're an open book. If you're a brand new syndicator, if you want to get into it, click on my link on my Calendly. Happy to jump on and give you advice. I actually had my boss at my last company reached out and asked me to reach out to one of his students he works with. And I spent an hour with him on Zoom, just giving him information on how we run our business and what real estate's all about. So we're an open book. Ask us whatever you need. I was hoping you're going to say my old boss reached out to me and wanted to learn real estate. That would have been cool. (laughs) He's already invested. Don't worry. (laughs) 
Awesome. And Vikram, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? I think the best way is to go to our website, Rise 48 Equity. That's Rise numbers four and eight, and then equity.com. And then there's a button in there for investing. So if you click on invest, you can schedule a call with me, and then I can jump on a call with you to describe what Rise 48 does. And then if you're interested, we'll get you on our investor list to make sure you start seeing deals that we do in Phoenix and in Dallas. Vikram, thank you for sharing your time with us today. I knew you guys were one of the superstars of this industry. I had no idea that you had this incredible rise You've got these great back-end systems, a lot to learn from you guys. So thank you for your time today. Of course. Thanks, Ash. We've been incredibly fortunate and we're happy to share how we got there and just to help other people get up to the same level. Awesome. Best ever listeners. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. Share this episode with someone you think can benefit from it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day. Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? Well, if so, Join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.